Hello, you are listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming none other than Ken Ramirez to the podcast. Welcome, Ken. Well, thank you, Hazel. Glad to be here. So you mentioned um, a little bit earlier on some of the work that you were doing with elephants, and you've pioneered many conservation training projects with varying species in the field. Could you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, it's it's kind of an, uh, was kind of an odd direction to go in, but as someone who's worked in zoos and aquariums for a long time, one of the things I've always been passionate about is conservation. I think as a as a trainer and educator, uh, one of the things I've always enjoyed doing is sharing what I've learned about animals with people. And I always found that when when the training that we would do was being used for other projects. In other words, we would take a blood sample to monitor the health of an animal, and then that sample was divided up and sent to a researcher or sent to a conservation project. I always was fascinated by that, and I thought, wow. You know, I, as a young trainer, I was like, wow, I'm I'm actually participating in this conservation project. Oh, gosh, this work that I'm doing is helping not only the welfare and well-being of the animal, but it's helping this broader cause and helping the understand more about the species. And so that always intrigued me. It always fascinated me. And uh, and then early in my career, I had the opportunity on several occasions to get sent to an oil spill site where where they needed people from zoos and aquariums who knew how to handle animals to help uh, rehabilitate and and help you know these animals be reintroduced back into the wild. Mm. And I think it was at that time that I first began to become aware when I was working, for example, in the Exxon Valdez oil spill, we were helping to clean up all these sea otters that had been oiled and some of the young otters couldn't be released back into the wild and were sent to zoos and aquariums. But I was helping to care for this group of animals that was going to be reintroduced back into the wild. And we needed to figure out ways of working with them that would allow them not to become habituated to people, not to become dependent on us giving them food and taking care of them. And we had to find ways of sort of allowing them to be able to, when they were reintroduced back into the uh, out back into Prince William Sound after the oil was cleaned up we needed to make sure that they weren't going to be seeking out people because we became nice guys who were busy who were giving them food and taking care of them in the uh, in the rehabilitation center and that started me down that path of realizing that we could work with animals that have uh that are wild that are not habituated to people and could potentially impact their behavior in ways mm. that would benefit them and uh, help with their conservation. And so I really became fascinated and began looking at examples where 
whether it was the recovery of the California condor that was done with the Los Angeles Zoo and the San Diego Zoo, or some of the early stellar sea lion work that was done at the Alaska Sea Life Center, uh, or some of the surrogate otter work that was done by the Monterey Bay Aquarium. These were all examples where animals were being reintroduced to the wild or were being, uh, uh, wild animals were being studied and cared for and trained, but we're using this unique kind of training that we don't talk a lot about in the training world. And that's remote training, training where the animal does not perceive you as being a part of the equation. Uh, we use it sometimes when we do enrichment, when we want an animal to learn to climb a tree, we'll put reinforcers in a tree that the animal doesn't know that we put them there. They just mm. find them there and it helps them with the tree more often. And those are the kinds of, of tasks that we often find ourselves using with animals in the wild uh, to help. I've worked on a polar bear project where we were trying to keep, keep polar bears from coming in due to climate change. They were coming further and further south every year and making their way into towns and villages. And we wanted to teach them not to come into towns and villages and go elsewhere to find food. Or a chimpanzee project in Sierra Leone where chimps were being slaughtered by poachers. But we found that if we could teach the chimps to scream in unison, that that loud screaming would alert the park rangers of something amiss and they could come in and and intervene and by doing that training project we were able to reduce uh poaching uh in that particular part of the national park by 86 percent wow uh, with polar bears in alaska we implemented a training program and and prior to training there were an average of 320 something polar bear incidents every summer uh, in each of these villages after the training project, the number of polar bear incidents was reduced to four, a huge decline in the number of polar bear incidents because we helped teach them to go look for food elsewhere. How so do you approach that though? Like when you're given, you know, that, oh yeah, there's 300 odd polar bear instances, we need them to stop. How do you then go in and say, this is my training plan? You know, it's very different well, to the traditional I want to teach my dog to sit or I want to, you know, how, how do you go ahead with it? It's very, very different. Part of it starts with a spark of an idea. And oftentimes I look for people who work with those animals in those situations to talk about, I'm confounded. I have this problem. And this is the challenge that we're facing that the, 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 the uh, chimpanzee example is a perfect example of that. I was not invited to help solve this problem. Uh, I just happened to be invited to a an evening lecture that the head of the, uh, the Sierra Leone National Park Service was doing at a zoo. And it was a fundraiser to help with conservation issues. And I happened to be in that town doing some consulting work for the zoo, but it had nothing to do with chimps, had nothing to do with conservation. But I was invited to this evening dinner because they thought I would be interested, and I was. And so I happened to be listening to the terrible problem they were having with poaching in of chimpanzees in Sierra Leone. And I happened to have been seated at a table next to one of the park rangers, uh, not the guy who was doing the, the lecture, but one of his staff. And during the breaks, we just happened to be talking and 
And he said, ah, it is just terrible that we cannot teach these chimps to scream in unison because if they would, we'd hear them at the ranger station and we could rescue them. Light bulbs. <laughs> and I thought I heard teach, you know, and I thought, whoa, what did you just say? And he said, oh, it's just uh, too bad. We can't do anything about this problem. And I said, no, no, no. You said something about teaching them. And he goes, ah, it's a stupid idea. I didn't, I, I didn't mean to say it. And I said, no, no. There was something about that idea that made me think of something that might be possible. And he explained to me that at various times of the year, the entire population of chimps will scream in unison. And it's such a loud cacophonous mm. sound that carries for miles and they can hear it at the ranger station. But interestingly, when poachers approach, that doesn't happen. They don't all start screaming once. And he said, but I just was thinking one day when we were hearing the sound, in fact, every time we hear the sound of them all screaming, we think something must be up and we often will dispatch a team to go out and investigate what's happening. Um, and and uh, But that never happens when poachers arrive. And, and so I started thinking about this idea that why not, why couldn't we capture their screaming behavior mm -hmm. and on cue? And he, he asked how, and he was very intrigued by it. So he brought me to his boss and we began talking and that began this two-year process of talking about how we would capture that behavior, how we would put it on cue, how we would reinforce the screaming behavior. And as we talked about the logistics of all of those things, two years later, I find myself in Sierra Leone helping to start this project where we actually capture the screaming behavior. And we ended up installing these PVC pipes into the trees that were preloaded with a variety of reinforcers that we could trigger from it remotely. So when they would scream, we would launch mm. uh, fruit and insects and other things <laughs> into the air that the animals would. And we got them all. It, it took us all of 10 days to mm. teach them to scream in unison. And then, of course, was the problem, how do we get them to stop screaming? And so that was what we had to figure out, well, how do we put this on cue? And originally, our cue was going to be when poachers approach, we would have them scream. But the reality hit us that what does a poacher look like? And yeah. a poacher can look like anybody. And so we ended up teaching them that when humans approach, whether it be in a Jeep, on a bike, on a motorcycle, in a car, on foot, that that would trigger the screaming. And so once we decided that that was the cue, we managed to put that on cue. And that's how they're screaming over the next two years, we managed to get that, that poaching in that national park reduced by 86%. It was an amazing, Incredible. An amazing accomplishment. Um, and it, it, it all begins often with a conversation. You know, someone, you know, someone will say, you know, like with the elephant project I'm involved with right now, these elephants start in Kafue National Park in, in Zambia. They migrate to the Northeast, migrate through the Southeastern tip of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and then come out the other side back in Zambia again, and then continue up to Tanzania. And when they migrate, Zambia has excellent poacher protection laws. They, have, they depend on elephant migration to fund tourism that they mm -hmm. do. And so they, they really care greatly about maintaining the, the population of elephants, but these elephant populations have been declining over the years. And every year 
these animals pass through the Democratic Republic of Congo, where there are fewer protection laws, poachers get 60 to 70 animals every year. Um, and so, so in conversations with uh, people from Zambia, and this was actually started with a Elephant Conservation International, was was looking for a solution. And they were just talking to me once about the fact that these elephants go through this small, you know, 70, 80 kilometer period of time when they're in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And during that short period of time is when they all die, when they all get killed, and when so many of them are, are, are slaughtered. And if there was a way of of rerouting these these animals around the Democratic Republic of Congo, it would eliminate this problem. And so we started talking about how that might be possible. So what ends up happening is you end up in conversations with people who present the dilemma. And when they the dilemma ends up being that that one of the solutions is, gosh, if we could just teach the animals to do X, then that's when my brain starts thinking, okay, how would we do that? What would be the mechanism for teaching this? And how do we do this without, you know, usually when people think about training, you think about having the animal in front of you and you giving cues and teaching the animal to do something. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is through remote training is you don't, you're not a part of the process. Well, you are a part of the process, but the animals don't know that. Yeah. You are controlling the reinforcers. You're controlling the environment to help the animals successfully change their behavior that will solve the problem. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of troubleshooting. And with this particular project in Zambia, we began discussing it uh, back in the early 2000s. It was finally in 2009 that we began doing serious environmental impact statements and looking at the possibility, which led finally to in 2013, 2014, and 2015, having legal hearings to get permits to do this project, which led to us finally beginning, beginning the project in 2018. So this process began nearly 20 years ago yeah. we began thinking about it designing the idea proposing it getting permits doing studies and so it was there was 11 years of of planning in the making before we even started really seriously putting the plan together in a real way and then finally it, we began the project in 2018 and we have a permit to try to complete project in 10 years and so that's in 2027 we hope to be completed with this project and have taught the animals by that time to completely change their migration route this is the fifth year of the project that we're involved in now and we have been successful we have seen though for the first time in over three decades that population has started to grow again it was uh, on a decline every single year until we began this project and now Poachers are no longer taking animals faster than than they can be born. Mm. They're not taking them at all from this population. So the population is now on the rebound. And we've seen four years of consecutive growth in the population. And uh, and so it's very, very satisfying and very rewarding. Of course. Those kinds of things be successful. But, you know, 
and now it's at a point now where I have a lot of people contact me for how would you go about doing this? Mm. And, you know, I start, I talk to the people who work with those animals and who are responsible for protecting them. And I'll say, well, here's what you probably need. You need to think about this, 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 that, and the other, and you need to find out whether there is funding for that. You need to find out whether there are permits that are going to be necessary yeah. to look at. And then I let those organizations, and usually if it's a government agency that's looking for a solution, they're the ones that are going to know whether it's going to be possible or not. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's not a government agency, in which case then you're going to have a lot more obstacles to overcome to be able to find a solution. But you get those people involved, and a big part of it is a big team effort. It, it ultimately, a project like this, rerouting of the elephants, requires hundreds and hundreds of people and dozens of agencies, government agencies, uh, environmental agencies, uh, universities, um, tribal nations, those that the elephants are going to be walking through. You, you end up getting many, many people involved, and that becomes the biggest obstacle of all is getting this group of people from diverse backgrounds with diverse ideas to agree to allow this project to continue, mm. to continue. And so it's, there, there are many of these projects going on all over the world right now. And um, they take time. They take lots of time and lots of patience and a lot yeah. of dedicated people to make them, to make them work. And I've just been very fortunate to be a small player. Uh, you know, in, in many of these projects, I, I have become the, the project leader, but it started with just a conversation with, some scientist, some park ranger, somebody who just was interested, and then mm. it leads places. And many of these conversations don't result in any in, in a project. It becomes complicated, too difficult. Um, but when there's a will, there's usually a way. You just have to find the right path, the right solution, and it requires lots of conversations and lots of discussions. Absolutely. And I love that just a throwaway comment from a park ranger can bring about such lasting change. And I'm so interested about the elephants as well, because that is such a massive project. So you have such a big population, but over such a massive wide ranging area. How did you approach the training for changing the migration pattern? Well, part of it was was really understanding, you know, part of the challenge was understanding that the, it was this small distance that the elephants mi migrate through that needed to be changed mm -hmm. the conservation groups in that in 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 that region had been trying to work with poachers for the last 30 years to find them alternative forms of of income and other things but it it was just too lucrative for them mm. and even when some poachers did find new new forms of income new poachers would come in and take their place and um so a big part of it was simply looking at the route and figuring out, A, was there a way to deter them from going the old route? But more importantly, was there a way to reinforce them for moving along the new route? And since the main reason for them moving up toward Tanzania was to, to get better water sources uh, during certain times of the year, uh, we decided to use man-made watering holes uh, along the the new route to reinforce them from mm. moving in that direction. 
And, and that was the process that we used and, and it turned out to be successful, but it took a long time to, to, to get the permits and the environmental impact statements yeah. done to permission to move that route. But in essence, it was a simple, the idea was simple. How do we block their old route and how do we reinforce a yeah. new route? <clears throat> and then once we figured out how to do that, we then had to figure out, okay, how do we actually implement that? And what do we do if the elephants try to break through? And what do we do if if the behavior isn't what we were expecting? And we had to we had to come up with lots of contingency plans and 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 as I said, we had to do hearings uh with a lot of different activist groups and and environmental agencies all wanting their say and wanting to put their concerns into mm. the to the decision of what we ended up doing but in the end it helped make it a a better decision a better outcome i mm. think because we did get everybody's input and everybody ended up being a part of the final process yeah i think it's wonderful you mm. know training so much of training is in essence very simple you know, you reinforce something to increase something or you're conditioning something to mean something that it meant nothing before. In its essence, the majority of training is that, but it leaves you so much scope to explore behavior with your animal. So as someone who has seen the training field progress so much in the last 50 years, what is your hope for the future? You know, <clears throat> I have a lot of different wishes and dreams for where the future would go. One of them is, of course, my never-ending quest to help people understand the value of good behavior management. And if everybody recognized the value that training brings to an animal, the pet community would be better off, the zoo community would be better off, animals in the wild would be better off. I believe there's a lot that could be done. And so I believe till the day I die, I will probably be out there helping people understand the value of training and the value of what it brings to the animals under our care. That would be one of the things that I hope for the future. I also believe that, um, and I think that for me, all of my other future, other wishes all come back to that. Because when I think about the challenges that my colleagues working in the zoo community face with activists or others who wish to shut them down, often with misunderstandings of mm -hmm. the value of training. And so that would be different. I work in the pet community and millions and millions of dogs are euthanized every year because of behavioral problems. But when I look at the behavioral problems, only 10 to 15% of the behavior problems are really serious behavioral problems. The majority of them, if they had just known that training was a valuable part of having a pet in their life, things could be so different. You know, and I I would love to see a day where, where habitats that these animals live in in the wild were not being destroyed. Um, and that's not really a, a, a change in the in the training world, but it would mean for me that many of the projects that I'm involved with, with animals in the wild, wouldn't be necessary. And I'd be happy not to have to work on a project to help an animal in the wild because the animals were doing so much better and doing well completely mm. on their own. I think uh, it would be great 
if we didn't have to step in and help. But I think we have to because it's impacts that humans have had on animal life that make it necessary for us to intervene and make it necessary for us to find solutions to problems. But I think as a trainer who's been doing this for a long time, I just wish for a day when everybody saw and understood the value mm. in training and understood the benefits that it brings to the animals that we care for. Um, and to me, if that happened, a lot of other things would start being easier and become easier to fix and easier to solve. Um, so that's that's my goal. I, I continue to wish that everybody could work together better. I, I think that's happening more and more. Um, I wish everybody could see, and then, and then, and then within the subset of people who see the value of training, there are still those that while in the worlds that I work in, we very much see positive reinforcement as the solution and the way to approach training. There are still many, 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 many trainers in the world who see the value in training, but insist that punishment is an important mm. part of the process. And thus, um, it's it's a double-edged sword. I would like everybody to understand the value of training, but I also want people to recognize that there are ways of accomplishing everything that you want to accomplish without having to resort to punishment as a major part of the training picture. I understand that punishment exists in the world. There will always be punishers to behavior. However, we don't necessarily have to use them to get what we're what we'd like to see happen and i think that recognizing the value of positive reinforcement and the benefits of positive reinforcement becomes the next the next big hurdle for us you know um you know because just because everybody embraces training doesn't necessarily mean they would embrace positive reinforcement mm. and that's of course what is important to me yeah and i know a lot of my listeners are trainers already or aspiring trainers but if there is anyone that's listening who has a pet at home and maybe is wanting to get more involved with training or bring more training to their animal's life where would you advise they start well certainly i would encourage people to to visit uh, organizations and learn about organizations that promote good positive reinforcement training. Uh, I oversee an organization called Care and Prior Clicker Training, and we do have wonderful resources that help people understand the value of positive reinforcement and help people become positive reinforcement trainers. Uh, in the zoo world, I would encourage people to, to visit uh, the International Marine Animal Trainers Association or the Animal Behavior Managers Alliance. Those are two organizations that that are really focused on training and really promote training in the zoological community. Um, so I just encourage people to find out more about training and learn about the benefits of positive reinforcement training. And so those are the those are the organizations that be at the top of my list. Karen Prior Clicker Training, because of course that's where I work and that's what I really do a lot of work with. But I also firmly believe that organizations like the International Marine Animal Trainers Association and the Animal Behavior Managers Alliance are also great organizations that do a wonderful job of promoting positive reinforcement training in the world. And for anyone who is listening who is a current trainer and is just looking to be the best trainer that they can be, what would your advice be? One of the best things I would, would encourage people to do is keep doing what you do best. 
keep practicing and keep networking. Um, too often, I think that people are so busy looking at where they want to go next. And I don't think there's anything wrong with looking to the future, but often the, the path that leads to the future is doing a really good job at what you're doing right now. Do the best job that you possibly can. Do the very best for the animals that you're caring for today. That will open the door to the future. Um, I think that there's wonderful ways of staying involved and networking, et cetera. That's always a good thing. But I've often found that the quickest thing to derail someone's future is being so focused on what that that golden, whatever that golden job is that they would like to have in the future, they put so much emphasis and, and effort into looking at that, that they fail to do well at what they're currently doing. And oftentimes the smallest, the simplest of projects that cares for your animals on a day-to-day -day basis, do that exceptionally well. And when you do that exceptionally well, it opens doors within your own organization for new opportunities, new other opportunities, and those are the opportunities that will allow you to keep going in other places. And don't discourage people from dreaming. There's nothing wrong with looking to where you'd like to be in the future. It's just that don't do that to the detriment of your current job. Do your current job the best that you possibly can. And, and that will almost always lead to other opportunities, which will then lead to new opportunities and lead to other places. You know, when I think about how I started, I was a, an entry-level trainer just doing my job, but I focused on doing it well. And that opened doors for me to go in other places. And, and, and that's what I encourage people to do. Have a good outlook, have a positive outlook on life. Do your job the best that you possibly can. It will it will help you open doors to other opportunities. It always does. That is honestly such incredible advice. And I couldn't imagine ending this episode on a better note. So Ken, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule. I know that everyone listening is going to learn so much from this. So thank you very much. Thank you, thank you Hazel. Pleasure being here. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe, and I will catch you guys next week.